Last week, Alan taught on the first passage, uh, the first part of John chapter 5. And what we have is this, this man who was at the pool of Bethsaida, Bethsaida and he uh, was, was lame. He, was, he wasn't paralyzed, but he had some sort of illness that caused him to be immobile. And we also learned that this man likely had some sort of habitual sin that was causing his illness. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? shows compassion to a man who is ill, but who most likely had caused his illness. And yet Jesus still heals him. He still shows compassion and love towards him, and he heals him. But it turns out that it was on the Sabbath, as you weren't supposed to do any sort of work, according to the Jewish leaders, on the Sabbath. And so where we're picking up today is Jesus is being questioned for his healing of a man on the Sabbath. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and it seems as if no matter what you say, it only seems to get worse, right? Like they're like, why'd you do this? And you answer and then they're more angry, (laughs) right? Uh, Sometimes we we have those situations because we make mistakes. Sometimes we have that because some people just don't want to be understanding or, or they're out to get us. Jesus is having this type of situation where people... Are these Jewish leaders are challenging him. They're questioning him. And as Jesus answers, we're going to see that they're only actually going to get more angry and, and seek to kill him all the more. Right? But Jesus, in this text, defends his authority and defends his actions. Let's read the first verse, which is 516. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they began to persecuting him. And so what we're going to see in this next passage is Jesus defending himself. And it's really interesting because Jesus is is God in flesh. Like we've learned in the gospel of John that he indeed is is the word who became flesh, right? He is God um, in a human form. And so he doesn't and shouldn't have to defend himself. Yet Jesus does for their sake and for our sake. Jesus could say, hey, look, I'm God. Don't question me. Instead, he gives us five um, points. He defends his authority with five points. And we've got a slide for that. The first is he defends his authority and his actions with his deity, with his sonship, the witness of John, the witness of scripture, and the witness of Moses. You know what I call this? This is apologetics. It's like a seminary term for defending the faith, right? We as Christians, we go out and we share the gospel in love. And sometimes when you do that, people then come back at you with difficult questions or even accusations. And now when you're on the defensive and you're defending the faith, that's called apologetics. Jesus was going out and showing this man love teaching him about his power to bring the dead to life in a physical way of healing this man. And now he's being accused, he's being questioned, he's being charged, and he's defending the faith. He's defending his actions, and more importantly, his authority. So Jesus does this in five ways, um, which we're going to see in this text. But the really interesting, and I would say beautiful thing about this, is that in apologetics here, uh, of this, this approach that Jesus takes of defending his actions, all of it, towards life. His, his whole goal with his well-substantiated authority 
is to bring the dead to life. Amen? And I would, I would say this. I know sometimes we go, oh, we're talking about theology or, or this or that. It's so, it's so boring. That can be kind of the phrase, right? Like, oh, theology is boring. We really need to talk about that. I would say this. Good theology and doctrine, when expressed well, the goal of it is life. The goal of it is to defend life because the doctrines that surround Jesus Christ that we're going to be talking about today and others like them, they are key for us understanding who Jesus is and being able to experience life in him. The goal of good theology is bringing death to life. Amen? So we don't just talk about this to sound smart. We don't debate it because it's fun and we like, you know, the like mental wrestling. No, it's because we are defending what Jesus said about how true life is experienced. Amen? Amen. So we're going to see Jesus set this example of of good apologetics, setting good doctrine. But like I said, he says some pretty radical things, and it's these types uh, of of moments where he actually gets the Jewish leaders more angry at him and want to persecute him and even kill him all the more. But he does so for the sake of bringing the dead to life. Let's read this first passage. It's on his deity. John 5.17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so like I said, they're like, hey, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? He says, because I'm equal with God, and essentially is what he's, he's saying by saying, my father's working until now, and I am working. He is putting himself in an equal position with the Father in heaven. They understood in Jesus' phrasing that he was claiming equality with God, the Father. And by doing so, saying that he is in fact divine, and that made them more angry and desire to kill him all the more. So I have some points here. The Father is working. He never stops sustaining all things. Like God holds the universe together. He is always active and moving. He never stops doing these things. Jesus says that the Father is always working and I am always working. The Sabbath was made for man, not for God. Jesus in another gospel even says this. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So those are words that were not probably taken very well by the Jewish leaders. They're like, hold on, you're claiming to be divine, and now you're saying that God is always working and that you're going to always be working in this way of healing and bringing people to life. For Jesus, that never stopped. More than that, Jesus here is teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. Jesus teaches it. The Bible teaches it. I took this little statement because I know the the Trinity can be confusing, but here's kind of how we have expressed it as a church. This is on our website, but I went ahead and pulled it off for you guys today. We believe in one personal God who is one in essence and exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one in nature and essence, but three in works and substance. We believe in a triune God. 
Right? Now, I know, I know the accusations. This is one of the things that we have to defend in, in apologetics is that we believe in a triune God. They say, well, you believe in three gods. No, we don't. We believe in a triune God, one God who exists in three persons. Uh, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So we see here, Jesus is claiming equality with the Father because he is a part of the triune Godhead. Everybody got it? Amen? If you have more questions about the Trinity, we can talk afterwards. I love talking about the Trinity. I will talk all day about the Trinity, but I don't want to bore you guys. So for those of you who are super interested, come and talk to me. So next we we see Jesus go from really pointing out that he's divine to more specifically his role as the son, his sonship. Now, this is really important because um, God the Father has God the Son So God is, in a way, his own heir, right? His own heir, and he passes on all to his son. So within the Trinity, all authority, all honor, all glory is being passed from one to the other. So there's this divine transaction that happens between the Father and the Son continually. This was important to uh, the Jews because they... Um, the firstborn son, they would give all to him. He would get the double portion, more than the rest of the family. And all the authority of the family was given to the firstborn son. He was now the man of the household. He was the one that would be in charge of all. And so God is his own heir. Okay, He gives his authority to himself from father to son. We see Jesus defend this, and we also see that this is Jesus' main point. Out of all the things that Jesus points out, he keeps coming back to his role as the son. Even in the others, the witness of John, the witness of scriptures, the witness of Moses, we're going to see that Jesus keeps pointing it back to his relationship with the father as the eternal son. This is really important that we understand and, and, and have a good grasp of who Jesus is and just how much authority We're going to see this here. So the first, we actually have this divided up into three parts um, because Jesus really breaks down his sonship. Uh, John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, um, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this is pretty bold. Jesus points out a clear connection to the sovereign, providential will of the Father. Jesus had a perfect understanding of all that the Father was doing. Him and the Father were connected in the will of God, and Jesus is completely aware of all that the Father desires, wants, and will do. And we see that as a triune God, he is his own heir. I touched on this already, that he's passing authority and honor onto himself from father to son within the triune entity. More than that, what is this authority for? 
right? Because we can talk like, okay, like why are we talking about the Trinity so much? Why are we talking about deity and sonship and heirs and all of this? Let me tell you right now, the entire goal of it, and Jesus keeps making it clear, is to bring the dead to life. To bring the dead to life. That is what the gospel is all about. It's what all of our our doctrines are about, is that we are dead in our trespasses. We are sinful in nature. And Jesus has come to bring the dead to life. Amen? So the authority that the Father gives the Son is for life. It's for you and I to experience eternal life with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Why it's beautiful to look at his sonship and his authority. Because it personally means so much for each one of us as we experience life in him. Let's see part two now, John 5, 24. Jesus continues here on the sonship. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So a few things here. Jesus has authority over life, which is given to him by the Father. Life and death is in the hand of Jesus. He has been given the right, more than that, the authority to decide who spiritually lives and dies. The Father, it says here, is not the judge anymore. It is, in fact, the Son who has the right to judge. That's powerful, because with that, Jesus... Though he has the power, he offers us life through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But listen to this. What's so amazing, when we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he took the penalty of sin for you and I, and then he rose again, conquering sin and death, if we believe this message, if we believe who Jesus is, it's not that we will have eternal life. It says that. We already have it, right? He has eternal life. If you receive Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. That should get you excited. Come on. You have eternal life if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You already have it. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to work for it. It's not one day, maybe, hopefully, you're already in it. Right now, you stand confident in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you, and you say, I am already living forever. I know I'm not arguing semantics here and verbiage. I'm stating a fact that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You're already going to live forever. And that's really important to know because now we don't fear death. Now we don't fear the world. Now we don't fear the enemy because we already have eternal life. I am already living forever. Amen? Listen to this. This next portion blows my mind because as amazing as that is, Jesus says this. Do not marvel at this. What? I just told you guys to marvel at it and Jesus said don't. What's going on? 
says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, don't, don't marvel that you already have eternal life, because the immediate question to that is, well, people die. What are you talking about? There's still a physical death. So you're saying we already have eternal life, but like my grandpa just died, or my, my mom just died, or my friend just died. Like, what are you talking about? People are in tombs. I can take you to the graveyard right now and show you all the tombstones. I can take you and show you that people are still dying. What's going on? Jesus answers that question by saying, don't just marvel that you have eternal life. Marvel that I'm going to raise you from the dead. That's the promise. We have eternal life because his promise is sure that he is going to raise us from the dead. All will be raised either to a resurrection of life or to a resurrection of death. And Jesus is the judge of that. But but Jesus has already told us in verse 24 how you are either raised to life or death, good or evil. The decision of either receiving or rejecting Jesus is where you will sit when it comes to the resurrection of life or death. Amen? So it's, you have to receive Jesus, and you have eternal life because you will be raised from the dead by him in a resurrection of life. His word is true. His promises are sure. What's amazing, too, is it said that God had given Jesus all the authority. Judge. But Jesus says that he judges upon the will of the Father. They have agreed upon um, way for judgment. Within the Trinity, they have agreed how the resurrection of life and death will be decided and is on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Scripture says that before the foundations of the world, before we were even created, Jesus died for us. This was already determined. This was already planned. This was God's plan all along to bring us into salvation through his death and resurrection. And in that resurrection, we are also resurrected in life. This is how the triune God has decided to judge, and it's upon the cross. I think that is That is amazing. So we see, first, that Jesus is divine. And so we can trust his authority because he is divine. More than that, we see that he is the divine son. He has all authority given him to him by the Father as the eternal son. And now we're going to see that Jesus defends himself using the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a different John than John, the author of this gospel, John the Baptist was one we've talked about a couple weeks now in in earlier passages of um, John's gospel. John the Baptist was this man who was preparing the way for Jesus as as really the final Old Testament prophet, as the final prophet pointing out who Jesus was, who the Messiah was. And so John the Baptist had been baptizing people. He had been preaching repentance, and he had a huge following. 
And so Jesus calls upon the witness of John to defend his authority and actions, just like you would in a court case. Jesus is calling upon a witness now. The first two um, ways that Jesus defended himself were on his own attributes, divinity and sonship. Now he's calling three witnesses to the stand, the first being John. Let's read. John 5.31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to, um, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. All right. So what's really interesting is Jesus now kind of brings this John the Baptist, this influential teacher, preacher, and prophet of the time to the stand and says, you have accepted John for a while now. Now it's there were things were starting to turn against John, and we're going to see that John is, is ultimately he's going to meet um, his end by being persecuted and killed. But John, at this time, maybe things were starting to turn because Jesus says, for a while you were receiving his witness. And Jesus says, you can go and talk to John. In fact, you already have. He says that I am the Messiah, God in flesh. I am the one who was promised, me. So he calls upon the witness of John, and he says, I don't even need to do this, right? He's saying, I don't even really need the witness of man, but I do it so that you might be saved. I find this beautiful. God does not need to bring any witnesses to the stand to defend who he is. Jesus says, the Father's witness is enough. My deity is enough. You should just believe me. But for your sake, I will bring someone you already trust to the stand, and he declares who I am. Not that I need him, but for your sake, he says. I find that beautiful, that God loves us enough to do things like that. You know, I think sometimes we as Christians, when we're sharing the gospel, need to do the same thing. I think sometimes we go, well, the Bible says so, so you need to believe it. And that is true, because we know that the Bible is true. And all of these things, that all five points that Jesus is bringing up here, are all taught in Scripture. And so we can say, hey, Jesus is who he is because the Bible says so, and that is enough. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm saying that it is. But sometimes for their sake, it's good that we use other pieces of evidence to show them that the Bible is true, that Jesus truly is who he said he is, and that God exists. So that's what good apologetics does. We use other pieces of evidence. Even though we don't have to, we do it for their sake so that they might be saved. Amen? We see Jesus do this too. He says, for your sake, I'll bring John the Baptist to the stand. I don't need him. But you need him. You need the witness because your faith is weak. So we should do the same for others. There's so much 
um, scientific things we can bring to the table, archaeological, historical. There's so many documented things about Jesus, so many documented things about the, the, the people in the Old Testament that we, we, can, we can prove that they existed. Bring all that to the table. There's a, there's a, you know, a wealth of it. There's a wealth of evidence. We can bring those things for their sake, amen? Because I know the temptation is to go, well, the Bible says so, so, brother, you need to believe. That's true. But sometimes for their sake, we can bring more to the table. Jesus here continues to point out the Father, right? He's like, yeah, I'll bring John to the stand for your sake, but really you need to be trusting the witness of the Father. That's where the real authority is that's been given to me. It all came from the Father. So Jesus continues, I said, with each one of these points, keeps pointing back to the Father and his role as the eternal Son. Okay, so number four, the witness of Scripture. So he brings the witness of Scripture, the Scriptures that they read, that they trusted, and more than that, the Jewish leaders had memorized. Okay? So he's bringing the Scripture to the stand here. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So Jesus does it again. He brings the scriptures that they knew, more than that, had mostly memorized. Most of these guys would have memorized these, these books that he's referring to, the scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you search them like diligently. Every day you memorize it, seeking eternal life, and eternal life is standing right before you, and you're refusing it. All of the scripture is about Jesus. He says, it's all about me, in essence, is what he's getting at. And he says, so believe in me. The scripture that you trust so much points to me, because I'm the eternal life. And then he again points to his sonship and the authority he has from the Father. Jesus is operating in the glory of the Father, yet they won't accept. Right? The Bible was all about Jesus. And Jesus is operating in the glory of the Father. He's coming in His name, and yet they won't accept. And He makes that interesting point. He's like, some random guy can walk, walk up and You'll honor him based just on his own name. I'm coming from the Father, the one and only God who gives me glory and authority, and you're not receiving me. It's ridiculous. Jesus shows that John, a trusted witness, pointed to Jesus and declared who Jesus was. Jesus now brings Scripture and says, Scripture pointed to me and declared who I am. Number five. The final witness, the witness of Moses. Jesus is really pulling out the big guns now. Because Moses was a big deal to these Jewish leaders. 
He, it, like, he was the most important figure for them, Moses. And now he's going to bring the big guns out and say, the witness of Moses. John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Okay, good news. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? <laughs> Jesus is so bold here. He's like, I was talking about how I'm the judge. Guess what? I'm not judging you. Moses already did. <laughs> Boom, drop mic. Moses already judged you. You're already under judgment because you've already refused the writings of Moses by refusing me. Because Moses was writing about me. The eternal life that you were seeking in Moses was in me. Moses was talking about me. So I'm not accusing you. Moses already did. (laughs) I love Jesus. I love Jesus for so many reasons. This is one of them. Oh, man. Okay, so... For them to be accused of not accepting Moses' writings probably would be the thing that would make them most angry because they had it memorized. They were all about it. They followed Moses. He was their main teacher. He was really their source for hope. And Jesus says, your hope is misplaced because you're rejecting the very thing Moses was writing about. Boom. Okay, so can we agree that through these five points, Jesus has made a pretty good argument about his, his authority, right? But why did Jesus make this argument for his authority? Why did he defend his authority so thoroughly? And what does he intend to do with this well-substantiated authority? He told us over and over again to bring the dead to life. Amen. Like, Jesus just wraps up this debate and clearly wins, right? Like, clearly wins the debate. But not just to make them look like fools. Not just so that he could go home proud that he won a theological debate. No, his entire goal the entire time, what he keeps bringing up is that I'm the judge and I'm offering you life. I'm offering you life. You're already dead in your sins. The the law that Moses gave you already shows that you have broken the law of God, that you have fallen short of God's standard. You are already accused. You are already on your way to hell. You're already on your way to eternal death. And I'm here right now standing before you, defending myself so that you will accept the life that I give. Jesus wants to bring the dead, to life. Jesus doesn't need to defend himself. He doesn't need to have this debate, but he chooses to. He wants them to experience life. We have a part to play in this. Did you know that? We have a part to play in this. The authority that Jesus has has to bring dead to life, we now, as the church, participate in. Did you know that? Let's read Matthew 28, 
18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, these are his final words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He says, all authority, and just to be clear, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. That is what he's been talking about the entire time in our passage in John, is that he has all of the authority. All of it's mine. So what does he want us to do? Go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We get to, as disciples of Christ, as the church, go out and operate in and under his authority. A lot of us, I think, fight authority in our lives. So don't we? Like, I know that my whole life I've been fighting authority, right? <laughs> like, I started a business at 21 because I thought it was a good idea. Also, I don't like having bosses, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, right? I'm like, well, I could do that myself, so I will, <laughs> Uh, right, my whole life I've been fighting authority, and yet I have found that being under the authority of Jesus is the best place to be. Maybe you're like, I, I, I didn't like authority in school. I didn't like the authority that was over me and my family. I didn't like. I don't currently like the authority that people have over me at, me at my job. Whatever it is, you can hate all that authority. Let me tell you right now, you're going to love the authority of Jesus. Why? Because it's about life. The authority of Jesus means that you have eternal life. You already have it, and you get to live in it. You get to walk in it, and you get to help others experience it. That is powerful. That is amazing to me. So the best place to be is under the authority of Jesus and operating in it. And so Jesus invited us in to this great commission. Make disciples and to teach them all the things that Jesus taught us. The great commission is great because it's in the authority of Jesus. And it's about bringing people to life. What could possibly be better than that? Better than that. There is nothing else that we can do that is more important than the Great Commission. There's nothing more important. And what an honor it is to get to participate in it. This was God's predestined plan from before the creation of the world. We have a part to play in it. Guys, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. He has rescued you from darkness if you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't, I'm going to invite you to receive him and come and talk to me after. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you now will have true and eternal life. Like not one day, maybe hopefully you have it today. You're already going to live eternity for eternity. I think that's amazing. And then you know what's really cool? 
is that you get to go and help others experience the same thing. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that people experience a life-changing moment with Jesus, and they immediately run out and go tell people. They immediately go out and bring more people to Jesus, or more people to the apostles to hear about this good news that Jesus has a resurrection of life. Because they saw truly just how good it was. What an honor it is to participate. I'm so excited for our church. I don't think that our church has ever um, had this much energy for the Great Commission. Like We started this church, for sure, with all of that in mind. But God has been developing us as a church. And I believe right now our church is more concerned about reaching this city with the gospel than we ever have been, truly. And I'm inviting all of you, join us in this endeavor, this great endeavor that Jesus started 2,000 years ago to help others experience life-changing freedom in Jesus Christ. Amen. So today, if you're part of Austin Chapel, Hope that, that something stirs within you to reach the city. If you're a believer, how God is stirring in you. Participate in the Great Commission to reach others because it's all about life. All about life. And if you're not, Jesus loves you so much. If you're unsure about it, if you don't like authority, if you've still got questions, you right now, Jesus loves you so, so much that he gave his life for you. He gave his life for the whole world, but he knew about you. He was thinking about you specifically when he was on the cross. He died for all of your sin, all of your darkest, worst moments. Jesus took them on the cross. He took the penalty for them, and he's offering you right now life. Because he has the authority to do so. Nobody else has the authority to give you life but Jesus. Nobody else does. There's no one else who can offer it. So come and talk to me during worship or afterwards if you would like to receive Jesus Christ. Amen? Worship team, you guys can come up. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For what you've done for us, God. You have all of the authority. And we are fallen human beings who sin against you, who don't meet the standard that you require. And with that authority, you could have done whatever you wanted, God. You could have just sent all of us into eternal death, and we would have been deserving of that. But that's not what you chose to do, God. You sent your only son to die on a cross for me and for every person in this room so that we would have eternal life, that we would be reborn, regenerated, made new, live in in this new existence as a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray that for every single person, no matter where they're at, that this truth would reignite their soul. Holy Spirit, come during these songs and ignite every heart in here. Fill us up with your spirit. 
Lord, I pray that we would worship you because you're worthy, because you saved us with all of that authority. You chose to save each one of us. That you love every person in this room. Lord, ignite something in us that, that just responds to your love with love. And then, that, then we would go out and love others because you have loved us and shown us what love truly is and what life truly is. In Jesus' name I pray.